You're listening to the True to Life Podcast, a show where we discuss life and analyze ideas as followers of Jesus in a post-Christian context. The True to Life Podcast is hosted by Aaron and Carson, two ordinary guys learning how to live with purpose in a changing world. Together, we'll discover how to be present with God and others in a way that is true to life. Welcome to the True to Life podcast on a beautiful, balmy Saturday afternoon, which is something that we haven't had over here in North Carolina for quite some time. I feel like we're in the the uh, the diluvians and the the floods uh, lately with all the rain that we've had. How has your uh, Tennessee weather been over there? Uh, warmer. Yeah, we uh, we hit seventy nine degrees yesterday. Lovely. Yeah. It really has been. It's uh, it's been really wet here. Yeah, it's been wet here, but it's it's dried out to a nice extent. Our puppy Topanga likes to go outside and roll around in the grass and sunbathe, so she has been living her very best life now. Lovely. Have you had many doggy baths as a result? No, we actually found this magical spray on Amazon where it's suffused with baking soda and it has some sort of fun tropical floral scent and then you spray it on i thought you were going to say bacon like maybe she just licks herself clean now or <laughs> we slather her okay, in bacon grease and well that would make her anyway, life happy baking soda uh, yeah so it's like baking soda and floral scents and you just spray it on them and rub it on and uh it's it makes them smell really good so i guess it's kind of like dry shampoo for puppies maybe no okay yeah but it's so at least it's smelly dirt. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, but it, yeah, it makes them smell really good. But speaking of baking or uh, bacon, we covered her like tick or flea pill or whatever in bacon grease, and she ate it right up today, which is a a first for her. So that was nice. Nice. Yeah. Is it usually a two person job? It's yeah. It's usually someone has to pop it down her throat, but uh, she she ate it right up today. Russell's not quite as intelligent, so he just took it with some some turkey. Uh, but she's <laughs> poor she, Russ. She's more worldly and experienced in the ways of of spitting pills out. Little Miss Worldly Wise Woman. <laughs> yes, yes, she sure is. Uh, we also had a fun morning. I uh, you're seeing me on video here, and to a. Uh, I'm sure to everyone else's great consternation, they cannot, but I'm holding up a eucalyptus and mint candle here, which is the latest addition to my my uh, little candle repository here. The way that that came to me is uh, we went out and I, I treated Candace to a morning of, of coffee and shopping and walking around together, having heart-to-heart conversations, Ooh. and it was it was very nice. We, we had a very so lovely. good morning together. And then she wanted to visit the store that looked like purple had thrown up everywhere. It looked like a dollar store got mixed into a blender with some purple dye and then got shiplapped. And it just looked like the the sort of trap of a store that I would never be found dead in. And a 20 minute. Was it a Bath and Body Works? No, it was some new kind of store. And so obviously I, I was like, hold my man card. I'm going to go in here uh, out of the love of my heart. For my wife, and then as we walked out twenty minutes later with my arms full of candles, I was like thinking how the the turntables had turned, and I had had to apologize for uh, casting judgment because it was it was a delightful experience. I got a black cedar and tobacco candle. I also got this one that says 
let stress gently melt away with the notes of eucalyptus, peppermint, and musk-infused cedar. So I've had quite the testosterone-soaked morning. Lovely. Hoping you can help me recover here. Uh, I'm wondering if perhaps you're too far gone. Well, the uh, the eucalyptus is bathing me in its uh, beautiful sense here, so potentially I am. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so what's new? Uh, those were all the things that were new with me. Uh, okay. Not too much else. What about for you? Um, my wife uh, didn't make me go in the store, but she did buy me something from Bath and Body Works. Did she? Um. Yeah, some uh, new cologne and body wash, oh. bourbon flavor. Oh, that's excite! Just straight up bourbon, or like bourbon and vanilla, or something. It well, the label says bourbon, but I, I think it's really more of like white pepper and oak and some things like that. Oh. But it smells really nice. I bet you do smell very nice. Your new haircut looks very nice too. No oh, thanks. Yes, indeed. Do you do any sort of uh, beard care? If for for all the people who are not fortunate enough to see Carson on video right now, he has an actual uh, manly, very reformed-looking beard uh, with just <laughs> a gentle hint of salt and pepper to to uh, really bring out the wisdom in in the beard. So, it's... Uh, oh, the salt and pepper, buddy! Look at this. Look, can you see this? Oh, so many little strands of wisdoms. I know. That's what I keep telling my wife. She doesn't believe me. <laughs> Well, but that's what the Bible says. So that is true. That's what I'm going with. It's better than you old bald head. And then I get eaten by bears. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, yeah, but, uh, beard care, uh, is, um, usually just, uh, more or less a brushing. Uh, sometimes I will put, uh, some manner of, of pomade, uh, for a little bit of hold, but, uh, but usually it's just a matter of uh, getting it trimmed by somebody who knows what they're doing, which I have a barber here locally that does that, um, that he did uh, when he cut my hair, which is, I'm very grateful for mm. He does really good work. Excellent. Well, now that we've covered hair care and eucalyptus, we have, uh, we're well on our way to recovering biblical masculinity. I think we've made a good start of it. So invite Owen Strachan onto the podcast now. <laughs> Please no. Douglas Wilson would show is up it, and beat us with Strachan the stick. Is it Strachan or Strahan? I, I, I never tell. I think it's Strahan, Strahan, but I don't know. I've never Str- heard it pronounced. Strachan. Read many, Some many are, things about him, but never. I know. People are, are screaming into their radios right now. Uh, I, I mean, we don't get played on the radio, but you know what People I mean. People yelling at their AM radios right now driving down the road. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that guy that's known for his, uh, hot takes on biblical masculinity. Uh, but anyway, it's just, we won't go there. It's just hope he doesn't hear. All right. Um, so jumping into things that are slightly more, uh, substantial, I had, uh, had a thought earlier this week that I wanted to ask you what your favorite Bible translation was. So I, I don't actually know your answer to this. So very, very excited to hear. Hit what me. do you think it is? Well, if I was to guess, I would say that maybe the CSB, because you've been lowering your standards a bit lately on a few things, oh and that would that would reflect that sort of a trend. So, uh, but maybe you've made it back into the ESV fold, and in your holier moments, might be a, an NASB, NASB lover. So I don't know. I'm I'm really really excited to hear. 
I am uh, an equal opportunity Bible lover. Um, and I, uh, my preference, honestly, is just to read straight from the Greek, if you must know. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, <laughs> I uh, And I don't actually hate the CSB. I think it's a... Uh... A, a very nice translation. I think I do. I do like Greek, but I'm out of practice. Um, yes. So right now, uh, my preference and has been for a few years now would be CSB. Why for? Um, well, um, so around the time that CSB came out, uh, was when I had, well, I guess just before, uh, if I remember correctly, um, Leanne and I moved to Philadelphia and prior to that, I had been an ESV loyalist. And then, uh, prior to that, um, an NASB loyalist. And then prior to that in my childhood, I guess, an NIV abuser. (laughs) Um, but, um, but yeah, so, um, I, I really like the ESV. Um, I think particularly in, in some of the sections of, of poetry and, and things it's rendered, uh, very, uh, very beautifully in terms of, um, the, uh, the, the word choice and, um, the flow and overall literariness. Is that a word? Yeah. Literary, the, the literary styling, I guess. I, I think you're saying that you really love the prose. Sure. That too. Yeah. Well, um, but, I, but yeah, I, I definitely get you. I, I think the ESV, they did a really good job. It's, it's not like King James level of just literary beauty there, but I think rendered in a more comprehensible way, they kept about as much as you can. While still making it yeah, faithful. for for modern English, yeah. um, it, it's as close to the literary beauty uh, of the King James as um, as I think we've probably gotten mm-hmm. for popular English translations. Yeah, um, yeah. So um, so I was a ESV lover for quite a while, um, and uh, that went with my reformed beard and and everything else uh, quite nicely. Um, because if there's two things reform people love, it's beards and giant ESV study Bibles. Yes, yes, it is. I love the ESV, ESV study Bible. I feel like the it is a fantastic study. The Bible. notes and the illustrations in there are second to none, and it's quite a quite a towering accomplishment of uh, study study aid when you don't just have a giant commentary set sitting beside you. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yep. It's a fantastic resource. Um, but what shifted me to CSB, um, when it first came out, um, I, I wanted to learn more about it. So I just started to use it, uh, during my own personal, uh, devotional life. Um, and I really liked it. Um, I really liked the, the clarity of it. Um, the, it was very, um, it was very approachable, um, in terms of, uh, its ability to be understood easily. Um, which, uh, not long after that, I, um, 
I moved to Philadelphia um, for church planning. And um, even at that point, when it would, when it had come out, I was already, you know, thinking along those lines and thinking, wow, this would be uh, really good for, you know, non-Christians or people who were, you know, new to their faith or whatever. Um, because, you know, not that uh, non-Christians are stupid um, at all, um, but the a lot of what we understand of scripture tends to be, uh, in my experience from overall exposure, um, to biblical passages over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And as those things are quoted and recited and, uh, we read them in different contexts and, and things, um, we get used to hearing a passage in a certain way. And we, uh, we kind of intuitively understand the meaning, even though we might not come to that conclusion as easily were we to read those words for the first time, if that makes sense. So um, the, the clarity of the CSB, um, I really did appreciate because it seemed to me like somebody would be able to read that for the first time and come quite naturally to the conclusion that the... Um, that the text was, was pointing to where, um, something at a little higher, um, English grade reading level, like an ESV, uh, might be just a little bit harder to wade through. Not that it's bad at all. Um, but just that it may not be as accessible. And, um, from an evangelistic standpoint, if I'm going to share with non-Christians and for, with people that, um, that don't have a history inside the church, um, then I view that as a, um, a definite asset. Um, so I would say, um, that would probably be my rationale and I still use it for my devotional study. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's super helpful. Thank you for your thoughts on that. I, yeah. And I get what you're saying about the clarity. I guess I don't like it because I, I, I tend to prefer a little more wiggle room when it comes to matters of truth. I'm just kidding. Um, but I, I definitely appreciate your, uh, your desire for that and, and for that clarity. Uh, another one along the lines of the CSB that I really like, maybe even kicking it up to an even more understandable level is the, uh, the NLT, the, uh, the new living. I, I really I enjoy that one a lot to... for its readability. Mm -hmm. I, I think yep. that when giving a Bible to a, a new Christian or, um, someone who just wants a lot of clarity and a very, very easy to understand, yet not sacrificing any truth or or nuance. I think the NLT renders things very, very well. Um, yeah, I used the NLT for devotional study for a while yeah. um, back before I I was um, mostly in the ESV, um, and I really like that and, and have given Bibles to people for that same reason um, that we're in LT. Um, the thing that kind of sets CSB, uh, apart for me in, in that sense was, um, the fact that it is more along the, the literal side of the spectrum without sacrificing, uh, too much of the readability, mm -hmm. uh, in, in my estimation for what it's worth. Yeah. And I, I think their study Bible is pretty good. I think either one is going to get you to the point of the passage without right. question. For sure. And and we were extolling the virtues of the ESV study Bible. I also have a, a Holman Christian Standard uh, study Bible, and they did a really mm -hmm. good job with it. Um, it's also bound I think very the, nicely. Yeah, HCSB was probably underappreciated. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I, I've read both. I, I don't 
I can't really put my finger on it. I appreciate the CSB more than I did the HCSB. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, for those of you that don't know, the CSB was um, uh, drew on some of the work of the HCSB, and some people would look at it as like a HCSB light or like HCSB 2.0. Um, not that they didn't do their own work or, or anything, but it was um, – uh, the, the same people that, that published it, um, Lifeway and the Southern Baptist Convention and, um, yeah, um, they, uh, they were the ones that helped to produce both translations. Um, and they were only separated by, I'm going to guess what, like eight, 10 years. I don't know. Yeah. Not too long. Well, thank you. That, that's a, it's a good overview. I was, I was just genuinely curious what you were reading nowadays and that i think that makes a lot of sense i'm still uh actually have my king james attack bible here sitting beside me because it is one of my my fun daily drivers uh believe it cover to cover even I, believe the cover because it's got my name on it right there as, right. as kent hoven used to say um but i i just love the the beauty of the the king james but I try to pair that with the readability of a ESV or uh, an NLT. So just since you brought that up, mm-hmm. um, my mother and I had the, uh, the conversation today that of whether or not unicorns actually exist because the Bible says they do. Yeah, it does. I was talking about that the other day with somebody. It is mentioned in the King James Bible many multiple times. So believing the Bible again, cover to cover and the cover because it has my name on it and unicorns because it is enshrined and ensconced within the parameters of those two beautiful, genuine leather covers. Unicorns definitely exist in the Bible and we can move on. Um, just curious. Um, what do you believe that's referencing? Um, my first inclination is to believe that it's referencing a no longer extant version of a uh, well, no, it's mentioned after the flood. So, you know, I, I really don't know. So I, I did a little reading after that conversation and there, obviously it's all conjecture. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I think that's probably what that translation was to begin with mm-hmm. was conjecture. Um, this is a Hebrew word that they didn't really know what to make of it. And that was their best guess. Um, but uh, the, I guess the the most consistent uh, guess that that I read uh, across a couple different sources was something like a, a rhinoceros or uh, something like a, a extinct um, type of large mammalian creature with a horn like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I could easily see rhinoceros. My guess, my my preference would be narwhal, just because they're so cool. And uh, <laughs> whatnot, but I, I think it's clearly not a sea creature. But a narwhal is definitely something I would not believe exists unless it was like an actual thing. Uh, someone close to me recently learned that a narwhal was something that was real and not just something that made a cameo in uh, the Buddy the Elf or Elf the Christmas yeah. movie. Hope you find your dad, uh, which is one of the best parts of that that movie. Cute little whale of corn. Cute little whale of corn. Uh, but yeah, the, the King James, uh, also having to do with like dinosaurs and 
in dragons uh, in the book of Job in particular gives some some pretty fun verbiage around that. So it's uh, I don't know. I like it. What what was your mother's opinion on uh, take unicorns? I mean, of course she she loves to believe that unicorns exist. I mean, that made her happy. Well, tell her I'm on her side. Um, okay, we just haven't found them. I'll yet. let her know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but yes, so I, I love my King James and uh, I don't, I don't love it because it helps me understand the Bible better. It It is genuinely more difficult to understand, for example, the book of Romans. Um, mm-hmm. I remember when I got my first ESV after a childhood of reading the King James and I was reading through. You're like, oh, that's what that means. Yeah, <laughs> it was a literally an eye-opening experience. Now, I think that paired with some really good commentaries and good teaching, you can understand the book of Romans just fine from the King James, but as far as the common person and common me in particular, having a uh, a more modern translation of the Bible really helped me to understand such a, a hard-to-grasp book as Romans. But reading through poetical literature and wisdom literature, and I think Isaiah in particular, is mm-hmm. uh, an almost transcendent experience in the King James because it's so beautiful <laughs> for... Uh, for nerdy little me, I guess, but reading like Isaiah 40 through 42 in King James, just beautiful. Something that I don't think is matched or even really approached by the other translations we have. But as far as understanding the Bible and exegeting it well and sharing it with other people, especially I think the NIV and and uh, CSB, NLT, and even the ESV have made great strides in making it more approachable. And for that, I think we have our undying gratitude that they exist but i think there's still a yes still a place for being confused and and beautiful so that's why king james is still up there for so me. now now the important question that i have to ask which king james uh you know what i'm not even sure i'm so this isn't the 1619 king james it's definitely not the new king james uh I'm not sure. I guess just the... If it ain't the 1611, it ain't gospel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think I would quite go that far. I'm not sure which of yeah, the revisions this one is, but it's definitely not New King James. It's definitely an older one. I think it's funny because your church is not... Like, it's a King James church, but it's not a King James-only mm-hmm. church. Like... um like some of those King James onlyist type mm-hmm. um, where the only real Bible is the King James Bible. Right. Um, they just have a strong preference for that. Yeah. And, and not my current church, but the church that I grew up in. Yeah. The church you grew up in, which yeah. is uh, close to where you currently live. Um, which is currently my parents' church. Yeah. So yeah, I think they do a great job at their, their Bible of preference is the King James, but the, the founding pastor and the pastor there now would both say, like of of course, truth and gospel are contained in any uh, genuine, any faithful translation. But there's there's a beauty and a tradition that we come from that we find in the King James, where it's worked really well for us. We love it. We have such a deep appreciation for it. And this is what we tend to do as a church, especially preaching from the pulpit. But I never felt in any way dissuaded away from. Uh, truth or translations that were within the Christian mainstream. So I think they do a really good job of walking that line as opposed to the the well-documented cases of, as you said, King James onlyism, where people will try, I don't understand quite how, but try to trace 
a specific revelation or a, a peculiar truth that lies within the King James Bible that you can't find anywhere else, which is so strange because they would agree that it came from the Greek and the Hebrew, and it was translated into that English version. And so it doesn't make sense to me how you would have more truth in a translation than you would have in the original autographs and manuscripts, but that's... Well, I mean, yeah, they they would contest several of those autographs and manuscripts um, from uh, in terms of which ones were authoritative. Mm-hmm. Um, they would they would gravitate toward the Textus Receptus, but um, the uh, I don't know. It, it's kind of dated a little bit now, but um, James White uh, for um, for those of you who know who that is. Um, I, I don't particularly listen to his show. Um, the dividing line, but, uh, but he does have a very helpful book about the King James only controversy, um, that really kind of goes into that, uh, that uh, I hesitate to call it a movement, but I guess that, that whole, um, mindset of King James onlyism. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's, there's some wild stuff in there. Like, um, if I remember correctly, it's been a while since I've read it, but, uh, in one of the footnotes, he actually talks about how, uh, certain King James only have actually argued that the Greek was actually translated from the, um, the 16, uh, 11 King James. And I'm like, I just don't understand how a person can even get there with any modicum of intellectual honesty, but, um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll. We'll leave it there uh, as far as that goes. So as, as far as a practical takeaway, though, if if you are, and this is just getting back to translations as a whole, I think we would both agree that if if we were going to recommend some kind of translation for a, a new believer, I think the CSB or the NLT, fantastic place to start. Once you want to start getting into, I think, a little bit more nuance and a little bit more um, faith, I won't say faithful, but a little bit more wouldn't have a translation. The ESV does a really good job at blending readability with um, the genuineness of the original uh, language there. And then once you want to get super nerdy studying, uh, the NASB is what you would call a literal wooden translation where it takes just the, the ideas and the thoughts of Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic right into English, which makes it less, it doesn't flow as well. It's not as pretty, but you get a very genuine, you get a very wooden idea of what they were trying to to communicate there, which I think is why you would always be interested in studying more more than one translation at a time if you were doing some kind of a a word study. Always a, a helpful practice, particularly if you don't have like a, a commentary and you're not sure what a passage means. Um, just if if you do have multiple translations to read it in, that you can kind of get a sense of the different ways in which they render that passage from the original language yeah. um, that can actually go a long way in, in helping you understand a, a hard to understand passage. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's wrap up our first segment here. And then we come back, we'll talk a little bit about Beth Moore and a few things going on in the Southern Baptist convention. All right. Sounds fun. <laughs> All right, we are back. So, uh, Carson, one thing we wanted to touch on today, not dwell on for, for too long or jump on the the division train, but just to note and discuss at, 
a bit of length, I guess, um, is the fact that uh, Beth Moore has decided to leave the SBC. And just wanted to get your thoughts broadly on what you think that entails and just hear any uh, miscellaneous things that came to your mind. Uh, For anyone who is unfamiliar with Beth Moore, she's been in the SBC for a long time. Um, It doesn't look like she's leaving with any sort of acrimony, but it seems like her her vision for who she is and for who the SBC is as an organization um, have have parted ways at least for this time. Um, so, what are your uh, what are your initial thoughts and takeaways um, as far as as her departure goes? Mm-hmm. Um, well, obviously, whenever there is any level of um, division. Uh, in a Christian organization, whether it's for an individual parting ways or, um, you know, uh, I guess maybe when it's not like multiplicative, right? Like, uh, uh, church planner planning a new church and leaving to do that or a missionary, you know, doing the same. Um, but just for, um, for those kind of personal reasons, um, and, uh, reasons that would tend to, I guess, in yeah, anytime that happens, I, I think it's unfortunate and it's sad. Um, and I certainly feel that way about the, uh, departure of Beth Moore. Um, and it wouldn't really matter, uh, if it was the SBC or some other denomination, but, um, but Beth Moore has been, uh, in the SBC for as long as anyone can remember. Um, and uh, has had a untold impact on the lives of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of uh, women, um, and obviously some men as well um, uh, throughout her her career. Um, and so, uh, you know, she's been partnered with Lifeway, which is a Southern Baptist, uh, entity. Um, she's been partnered with Lifeway producing those materials of hers for, uh, for decades. And, um, yeah, it's just really unfortunate. Um, I would also say, um, sadly that it's not terribly surprising to me. Um, and you know, there, there are plenty of places where, um, where people have disagreed with Beth Moore about the way she may interpret her passage or what she thinks may be, you know, acceptable in terms of, um, in terms of some of the, the rules surrounding, uh, teaching and that sort of thing from a biblical standpoint. Um, Unfortunately, there is a very vocal minority within uh, the Southern Baptist Convention and even outside of the Southern Baptist Convention um, that sees a woman like Beth Moore as a threat and um, really has done a lot of uh, a lot toward just really demeaning and and mistreating her. And so um, I think it would be understandable uh, given how 
much of that she has received evidently and for how long it's been going on that um, I think there's a point at which anyone will get tired of it. Um, and uh, so, you know, uh, the first um, first thing that would come to mind would be, uh, I don't know, it was a year or two ago uh, when John MacArthur uh, would, was asked, like, what would you say to somebody like Beth Moore? And he was like, go home. Um, just really dismissive, really unappreciative of, um, of what she, you know, is, is trying to, um, to accomplish through, uh, her ministry. Um, and, you know, John MacArthur is somebody that, that I respect, um, broadly, but, um, but stuff like that was, I think probably a compounding factor. What do you think? Yeah, so I was I was wondering what what do you think led him to respond to her in that way? So not as a leading well, that, question, if, but why why do you think yeah. he would say something so straightforward to her like that? Well, I mean, if I remember correctly, wasn't that uh, after she had uh, had some tweets out that uh, said that she was going to be you know preaching uh, on Mother's Day or teaching or however you know we would need to phrase it. Um, to make it acceptable to Southern Baptist ears. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I can't remember verbatim what the text said, but the, the, the gist of it was there was somebody uh, that was uh, preaching on Mother's Day mm-hmm. um, that she had replied to and said, yeah, me too. Um, now, this was following a, a, a big revelation um, about a, uh, about, you know, sexual abuse scandals and stuff within the SBC, mm-hmm. um, still on the heels of that. Um, she had at that point, I believe, uh, released uh, like an open letter, um, to, uh, Southern Baptists as a whole. And, and particularly if I recall to, uh, Southern Baptist men to just say, here's what we as women in the SBC, um, are up against, here's my experience, um, and interactions with a lot of, uh, pastors and men that, um, that I would respect within the SBC. And she has shared a lot of, uh, brokenness and, and heartache and pain that she's experienced, uh, because of, of words and actions that people who should know better, um, have, you know, done over the years. And, um, so on the heels of that, um, I think that, you know, kind of made the, the rounds about the, uh, the interwebs and the blogospheres. And I believe that's when John MacArthur was asked on a, on a panel discussion. Um, you know, so what would you tell her? And he's like, go home. And then, you know, it gets like, you know, a bunch of cheers and stuff from the audience. Like, yeah, give it to her. Yeah. Like. Um, and it's just unfortunate because it's demeaning. And even if you think that, um, that it is not biblically permissible for her to, uh, to preach on a Sunday, um, there's better ways to say it. And, um, you know, I think the, the fact that the care wasn't taken in that regard or any of these other, uh, instances that she mentioned, um, you know, uh, it, it communicates something about how much you actually value a person, uh, when you repeatedly treat them without thought. Um, so yeah, it's, it's sad to me. Um, but like I said, unfortunately I'm not, I'm not terribly surprised. Mm. So 
from MacArthur's perspective, do you think that he thought that she was condoning a woman preaching from the pulpit on Sunday and possibly even equating that to a pastoral role from what she said? And that was why he responded in his, I guess, characteristic straight. Yeah. I mean, I'm, and right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to like, I don't want to second guess what John MacArthur thought when he said what he said. Mm. Um, that's just what he said. And I think regardless of what his intentions were um, and, and again, the, the whole John MacArthur thing, that's, that's like one occurrence out of many that she, you know, had pointed to as, um, you know, painful, not long before. Um, but I mean, certainly that one got a lot of, um, you know, some people, I, I think because we like to pile on, uh, just as a, uh, human animal, like we, we enjoy how it feels to, to be part of, you know, like really putting it to someone, um, you know, that was getting a lot of like retreats and yeah, like go MacArthur and like this and that. Um, and then there was, you know, another camp that was more like, come on, you can do better than that. Um, I, I guess my thought with, with MacArthur was, it, it is entirely feasible that the reason he said what he said was because he thinks that there is danger in allowing a woman to preach a Sunday, regardless of um, whether or not that will lead to a female pastor or, um, yeah. And, and I think there's even an argument uh, to be made that, um, you know, given Paul's instruction that maybe even the one-off of having, uh, the woman, uh, preach might not be something that's biblically appropriate. However, um, there's just a better way to say it mm -hmm. than, than doing, you know, just like one of those zingers that, um, uh, that gets a soundbite and, and gets everybody riled up and, and pile on. Um, but, yeah, I'm not, and I, I say that like I'm not trying to pile on a MacArthur either. I'm just using that as one that was like a very public example of what she says she's experienced. Yeah. So, I, I guess let me frame what I I see going on here, and you tell me if if you think this is fair. So there's there's one contingent of people who very much and and saying this about one side doesn't negate that the other side feels it too. But John MacArthur, John Piper, uh. Doug Wilson, et cetera, they would hold a very high view of fidelity to the scripture in a much more potentially literal view, um, where if it says something in the scripture that they would say, okay, that is what we're doing. There's no need to sugarcoat it. The, the closer we can come to just biblical fidelity and the further we can stay away from towing any potential lines, the better off we'll be. So they're very comfortable with just speaking in a very straightforward way about what they consider to be the truth of scripture and not sugarcoating it. I agree with you that I wouldn't have said it that way. And I think he was, he was overly blunt. Um, however, there's another camp and that Beth Moore would definitely be in where they're very much more oriented toward care and empathy and the way that people feel about how they're being treated. And those two camps 
while they do share some similarities, have been on a collision course within the SBC for a while, especially with intersectional groups such as racial minorities and and women and other marginalized groups who are crying out for recognition and for people to understand the uh, the abuse or the mistreatment or the marginalization that they've suffered. And they're taking those entreaties to people like John MacArthur or John Piper, and they're being met with very straightforward language of, well, here's what the Bible says. Um, it says, I don't permit a woman to teach, so Beth Moore, go home. That's John MacArthur's response to her, which while you can understand a very straightforward reading of the Bible, and then that response, it doesn't come across well to potentially most people, but certainly to someone whose main concern is caring for people, sitting with people in their distress, and trying to love groups that are marginalized. And I think there's been a pretty big chasm between those two different groups within the SBC. And unfortunately, what we're seeing right now with the the fact that not only Beth Moore, but other people are starting to trickle out of the SBC publicly and loudly citing that they haven't been treated well or understood speaks to the fact that we haven't been able to bridge that gap well and that there's something going on where people are starting to feel like there's nothing left to fight for and they're leaving as opposed to trying to come together, maybe have these arguments somewhere other than Twitter and reconcile with each other. That's that's what I see going on. I don't necessarily see it as either side being overly acrimonious to the other side, but there's just no useful conversation going on. What do you think? Um, I, I guess I think in the, in the case of Beth Moore, um, there, there were other issues that people had, um, even outside of the, that one Twitter thing, you know, with Beth Moore, some would level the charge that she was too charismatic or, um, you know, any number of, of things that people have critiqued over the years. Um, so I'm not saying it was, you know, just a, like a one-sided misogynistic type, uh, deal with Beth Moore. Um, but I do think over the course of time, um, that very combative and, uh, all or nothing type attitude, um, can do damage to relationships. And so, I mean, the SBC in, in general, uh, has always been viewed as kind of a, a big tent. We have some, uh, some general things that we hold as, uh, absolutely essential, um, uh, and some some of those things are, um, you know, primary gospel issues. Some of those things are secondary, um, uh, you know, interpretation issues for things like baptism and the Lord's Supper um, and those kind of things that make us who we are as a group. And um, those are all laid out in the Baptist faith and message, um, which is our confessional document. Um. However, uh, beyond that, um, there traditionally has been a lot of freedom in the SBC for things like disagreement, uh, difference of preference, um, you know, difference of theology that still fall within the bounds of, of what's laid out there. Um, and, you know, somebody like Russ Moore uh, recently, you know, had said that, um, 
you know, if there's not room for somebody like, you know, Beth Moore in the SBC, like that's a problem. Um, because our, our tent ought to be wide enough to, you know, accommodate somebody, um, somebody like that. Now, I, I guess ironically, um, there's a whole lot of people probably in the same camp that you mentioned before who would also be, uh, not too fond of Russ Moore. Um, so, you know, make of that what you will, but. Yeah. So I guess one clarifying question I would ask is if, if we're going to say things like, um, talking about theology or, uh, suffering abuse or just anything, I would, I always would like to tend toward clarity and citing like what you're talking about in those particular situations, not like naming names necessarily, but talking about like what ideas you mean. So when, when you're talking about a big tent for ideas, do you mean, should, should we be inclusive of female pastors or female preachers, or should we be inclusive of things that might be a gray area as far as the Danvers statement, or when you're making a a potential case or citing Russ Moore on saying that we should make room for Beth Moore in the SBC, what, what do you particularly mean there? Or are you unsure what he meant? So, um, the Baptist faith and message says that the pastorate is, um, reserved exclusively for men Mm -hmm. and that that's how Baptist Southern Baptists interpret scripture. Um, so there, there is no wiggle room there and, and nobody is saying, um, you know, if Beth Moore had said, you know, I'm pastoring my own church now, I'm going to go plant a church and pastor it. Nobody is saying like that, that would be a good idea. Um, but, uh, you know, there are Southern Baptist churches who, um, who have allowed from time to time, um, women to preach. And, um, you know, that is a little less clear in the Baptist faith and message, but overwhelmingly, um, Baptist churches have generally sided on the, um, you know, kind of following what I mentioned earlier, where Paul said, you know, I don't, I don't allow a woman to speak, um, that that generally includes, uh, preaching to, um, you know, to the, uh, to the congregation. Um, so while it may be permissible, I guess, in, uh, you know, formally, uh, with Southern Baptist, I don't know that it would, it's definitely not the norm. Um, and I guess I, uh, yeah, I I don't know, um, really how to answer beyond that. I mean, the, the bounds that we have set for ourselves are what's laid out in the, in the Baptist faith and message. Um, Danvers statement is helpful, but it's not a Southern Baptist confessional document. Um, it's not part of our, uh, our polity and our, uh, constitution, all that kind of stuff that, that we operate by. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think, you know, it's unfortunate when we have even somebody who, you know, you know, may not disagree or or may not agree with an individual on every point that we still can't cooperate together for the, the bigger things that we do agree on, which are far 
far more than, than what we disagree on. Um, and I think anytime there's a separation of relationship like that, um, it's unfortunate among Christians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. I I think that the whole issue of her leaving was precipitated by not just one thing. I think there was uh, verbal abuse on Twitter for sure, both by proponents of uh, Beth Moore and adversaries of, of Beth Moore. I think there was people who genuinely worried that she was not being nearly clear enough about where she fell on issues of uh, Baptist, like primary issues within what it means to be a Southern Baptist. And I think that there were people who simply exploited that controversy um, to act unkindly toward her. I think there were all of those things. I think that if you ask someone like a John Piper or a John MacArthur, they would say, uh, most likely that she wasn't being anywhere near clear enough and that there were so many outstanding questions that she wouldn't answer with a sufficient amount of clarity that it was dangerous to elevate her to a position of authority or to say to look to Beth Moore as someone that you would receive instruction from because they just weren't sure where her heart lie or where her heart lay with that. Um, but I think if you were to ask Beth Moore or her followers, you would hear her saying, well, I haven't transgressed directly anything that it means to be a Baptist. Moreover, my heart lies with caring for those who have been mistreated or downtrodden or marginalized. And are we not a denomination that cares more about that than we are about a woman making a joke on Twitter or even mm-hmm. speaking on Mother's Day? And I don't think that yeah. And that, that was the other, uh, factor too, is this was on mother's day. Yeah. It, it was a, like a one-time special event. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not, not that she hasn't many times publicly spoken at a church sure. in a way that you could broadly categorize as preaching. But I, I think that her, I think that her main gist was, do we care more about the, the black and white, uh, interpretation that we have of what it means for a woman preacher, or do we care more about the fact that God has gifted me to care for and serve people well, and that got litigated in the court of Twitter, YouTube, and and public opinion more than it did with people sitting down face-to-face or calling each other in the old-fashioned way and talking it through it as brothers and sisters, and it's led to her leaving the SBC. So I think there's there's fault on both sides, not so much as far as the main players, but as far as the the zeitgeist and the the overwhelming milieu of the the Twitterati and the chattering class of SBC people just not talking this through in an edifying way is what I see more than anything. What about you? Yeah. I mean, and you know, to your point a minute ago, um, you know, in the in the section on the church, I mean, the BFNM says very clearly that um, that the office of pastor is reserved for men, um, but it doesn't say anything beyond that. And so, you know, to um, to Beth Moore's point, you know, if if this is the document that's holding us together, um, then by that standard, at least, she's done nothing wrong. Um, or, or nothing deserving of, you know, the, the kind of, um, you know, pushback she had received. So, um, regardless of your take on whether or not a, you know, a one-off type, uh, event where, 
uh, she's preaching is biblically permissible or not. Um, I think there, there's a way in which to have that conversation, um, that, you know, exactly what you said, it, it doesn't require you to, um, to be mean spirited or to be ungracious or, um, ungrateful, uh, frankly, for the massive, massive amount of kingdom work that Beth Moore has done over the years. Um, whatever I disagree with Beth Moore on her contributions to the kingdom far outweigh those. Um, I think it's fair to say so. Um, so yeah, uh, it's, it's sad, but ultimately, you know, given kind of how things played out, um, in, in social media and, uh, with individual conversations and, um, you know, when we, when we misrepresent people that we disagree with, um, when we don't take them at their word and we, um, we build up a a case of, you know, something that we, we would like to imagine that they're saying versus what they're actually trying to say when we don't actually take the time to listen long enough to, understand what a person means by what they say instead of just, you know, taking their words at face value. Um, this is kind of what results. And I think we've just seen it on a macro level with, with Beth Moore because she's such a, a prominent public figure in those circles. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, th- I think it's unfortunate. I think it's discouraging to, uh, to women in our convention. Um, and I, frankly, um, I'm neither, I'm, I'm not surprised by it and I don't, um, I, I don't know that if I were Beth Moore that I wouldn't have probably done the same thing over time experiencing what she's experienced, regardless of whether she's right or wrong on some of these other issues. Yeah. And at the very least, the, one of the reasons we wanted to talk through this today isn't because we have an answer for it or we need to litigate her leaving, but just to recognize that she has done a lot within and for the SBC and regardless of which side of the fence you come down on, on whether she should have left or not, it does seem like there's some sort of inflection point that we're at. I know that's a popular phrase in political politics, but it just speaks to that. This seems like there's some, some sort of, flag being raised or some sort of turn that's being taken right now with people feeling as if they should leave the SBC as opposed to stay and try to reconcile. And another way in which that's happening is the, uh, the leave loud movement within some minority groups, finding that the SBC no longer seems to be a, a home for them or a place where they can uh, fully or sufficiently express who they are in the image of Christ within the SBC. And that's not something that we're going to get into today, but I mentioned that to say, I was, I was listening to a talk uh, that Jamar Tisby had given on one of his more recent podcasts where he was talking about his decision to leave and what that meant to him. And one thing that he said was central to it was the idea of what does it mean to have the image of God within you? And so I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into that particular facet with you today, not that we won't revisit some of these other things at some point, but I wanted to pick your brain on 
why does the image of God seem to be, at least to him, a really central part of this whole movement and this whole either exodus or feeling like the image of God isn't something that is being fully recognized in the SBC? The way that he had put it is um, that the image of God, however you understand it, needs to at least have room to encapsulate who you are as a person, but also who you are as a group of people, and that he sees the idea of the image of God as the most pivotal subject that the church will work through in this coming century, especially in regard to group dynamics, majority and minority culture, and what it means to be a a person as a whole within specifically our, our churches and our denominations. Um, so I, th- I think that might be a lot to throw at you as far as a question, but um, what do you see as, as we just set the, I guess, the groundwork for future uh, conversations about that? What what does the image of God mean to you in a person? Um, and then maybe we'll get into some of these other considerations. Yeah, I um, I don't know exactly mm. um, is the, the short and honest answer. Um, what is the image of God? Maybe you um, should find a better Bible translation. Maybe I should. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, that's not an easy thing to answer. And like there have, there's a whole lot of um, conjecture and there's a whole lot of debate about what that phrase means. Um, when it, uh, when the Bible says in the image of God, he created them. Um, well, and even more confusingly, right before he said that, he said, let us create man in our own image. And then he goes mm-hmm. on to say, so in the image of God, he created them. So you have a lot of confounding factors there. Like who is God talking to when he says, let us create man in our own image. And then even, even more so when he creates man, them in his image. So sorry, back to you. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, it's just. I think there um, there are a couple different ways uh, one could probably answer that question. I think the the overwhelming um, majority of opinion is that that it is describing something uh, which makes us like God in a way that no other creature on earth is like God. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say us, I mean us as human beings. Right. Um, that we are like God in, in a sense in which animals are not like God. Uh, trees are not like God. Um, you know, inanimate objects are not like God. Um, you know, in that same creation narrative, it talks about God breathing the breath of life into man's nostrils, um, so that he became a living being. Um, he didn't do that with animals. We in modern terminology would, would call, um, you know, animals alive, but, um, but it's not the same life giving breath that he gave to humanity. Um, he imbued humanity with something special that was like him in a way that no other being can experience. Angels, for instance, were not created in the image of God. Um, so 
the Bible is clear that all humans are created in God's image and that when, uh, when we sin, we, we tarnish that image, right? We, um, we stray from it. We stray from the ideal. Um, but you know, I think it's, it says something about the image of God that Jesus could be 100% man and still be God. Um, that he, if he is 100% man and 100% God, then there's something about our humanity that is like God in such a way that allows Jesus to be 100% man and 100% God. So if every human on planet earth, um, is created in the image of God, that means that there is something unique and special and valuable, inherently valuable about, um, every individual on the planet. And that is true, uh, regardless of skin color, regardless of, uh, spiritual state, whether they believe in God or not. Um, it is true, uh, regardless of sexual orientation. Uh, it's true regardless of any of these other kind of classifications that we might want to throw around race being one, um, that all of us are equally to the same extent created in the image of God. And so when I hear something like what you mentioned, uh, from Jamar Tisby, uh, him saying that that is not being, um, not being recognized or, or appreciated. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm not sure of the direct quote, but if he said recognize, my guess is what he, what he's feeling at least is that, um, that it's not being appreciated. Um, that even if we, we give recognition to it in terms of our theology, in terms of our words, that, uh, that maybe we don't fully appreciate it, um, in terms of our speech and in terms of our, um, of thinking, how does, how do the decisions I make or decisions we make within the SBC, um, how does that impact these people who are also created equally in the image of God? Hmm. Yeah, that's a, I think a really good intro and overview. Uh, one, one quick clarifying question. Um, so when you say that God breathed breath of life into a man and that makes him different from an animal, not necessarily disagreeing with you there, but what would you draw on scripturally to make that point? Um, at the point he became um, a, a living being, mm-hmm. um, I mean, the the spirit, the, the breath of God, uh, the life-giving spirit of God, if I mean, and you might have to go outside this passage to kind of make this connection, but all throughout scripture, uh, the wind, the breath of God is, uh, viewed as a, um, it's a kind of a, a manifestation of his spirit. Right. Um, so there seems to be the sense in which, um, God is, um, is giving, uh, this ability to embody life, to a human in, in a way in which he didn't give it animals. So, and this may come to, you know, how you view, um, you know, our humans made up, obviously we have physical bodies, uh, animals have physical bodies. Um, we have emotions. Mm -hmm. Um, and I would say animals have emotions. Um, 
we have the ability to connect directly with God in relationship with him uh, in a way that as far as we know, animals do not. Mm -hmm. Um, And that scripture doesn't really give us any indication that they do. So, um, you know, I'm not saying that the, that him breathing the breath of life is, is what distinguishes him necessarily from the animals uh, or from the rest of the created order. I'm just saying it, it does seem to move in that trajectory of, um, of God uh, breathing life, uh, giving uh, life and, and, and uh, making humanity unique in that sense. Um, in a way that he didn't do that with the rest of his creation. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. No, I think that's really good. I, and I, I guess my question, it's an honest question, not trying to trip you up is I don't know if that has anything to do with the image of God. It might, but I think you're a hundred percent on track that people can experience God on a spiritual level in a way that animals cannot. And there's something going on there where God is making man a a being that can communicate or interface with him in a way that animals cannot. There's that relational aspect that we have spiritually that I think that God has imbued mankind with in a way that right. animals haven't. So I'm I'm a hundred. Well, it... Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. And, and, and the reason that I say that though, it kind of goes back to the um, the idea of who Jesus was, right? Like Jesus was a hundred percent man, hundred percent God. We know that God doesn't have a physical body. Um, and, and in fact, the Bible says, you know, God is spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's not that, and Jesus is 100% physical human man, uh, and is still God, then what part of him was it that um, that was created in God's image that allowed him to commune with God? And and it seems to me, at least, uh, you know, that that would be the the primary thing. I mean, when we when we talk about people being created in the image of God, a lot of times we um, we relate that to a human's inherent value and worth and dignity. Um, but I think that value and worth and dignity, um, obviously is secondary to them being created in the image of God. They are valuable because they are created in the image of God. Mm -hmm. Um, so what is it that makes them more valuable than an animal? What is it that makes them more, um, more have more greater dignity? Um, what is it that made, uh, man, the pinnacle of God's creation in the, in the creation narrative. And I think it's that, um, that ability to relate to God in a way that the rest of the created order cannot. So I think that's really interesting. And I, uh, I wonder if that's exactly what it is, or if potentially you almost have the cart before the horse there. So it it, could be either. I mean, that's, (laughs) and, and that's why I said at the Mm -hmm. beginning, um, when you ask me what it is, I, yeah. my honest answer is I don't know. You yeah. know, I'm I'm completely open to the possibility that I may get this exactly wrong. But um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion from various viewpoints about this, and um, it's hard to say exactly what it is. I think in the in the sense that um, 
you know, people like Jamar Tisby probably mean it. Um, they probably mean the inherent value and worth and dignity of people who have been created and loved by God. Right. I 100% agree. And I, I didn't say that to contradict you, but I wanted to give uh, a different viewpoint just to see what you thought of it. Um, so you were talking, I think, saying that man has the breath of life, therefore he is a different sort of creation than the animals. Uh, a, a different kind of a 180 degrees different view of it is God decided to make man different from the animals and therefore he is special. Um, I don't see why those two are contradictory though. So if you, for example, take a uh, Michael Heiser, he's a proponent of saying that people are not special to God because they have a spirit. Um, people are special to God because God chose them to be his representatives on earth. And that's what it means to be made in the image of God. So it's not necessarily, oh, look, those things have a spirit. Those things have the breath of life. Therefore, they're different. It's I'm going to take man and I'm going to appoint him as my representative, my image on this earth, and I'm going to choose them, and then I'm going to breathe the breath of life into them and give them that specific and special appointment as my image bearer. And the yeah, amen. Yeah. And I, I figured you would agree with that, but it's there's there's a crucial distinction there, and it is that if you are chosen by God to have that role, basically, as his image bearer. Um, as like an emissary or an ambassador? Basically, yeah, that that being made in the image of God doesn't have anything to do with something that's intrinsically you as a human. It's that God has chosen you, and therefore you are his image bearer. So it's not... Yeah, absolutely. So we're not the image of God because we have hands and feet and hopes and dreams, and that we would reflect those attributes of God. It's that we're the image of God because he has chosen us to be his representatives on earth. And those are actually two really different ways of looking at it. It's not that we have these things that prepared us to be at God's image. It's that we're God's image because he chose us for that specific role or description. And then he breathed into us the breath of life. Yeah. And I, th I think both of those things are absolutely true. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, uh, even when uh, in that creation narrative, I mean, it speaks of him giving man dominion. Mm -hmm. It's a, like a regal designation yeah. um, of uh, man's power on the earth of his uh, being a, um, you know, in, in charge of what is on the earth. Yeah. Um, so I, I would absolutely agree. Yes, absolutely. God chose humanity as special. And thus he, you know, breathed the breath of life into them, gave them the ability to relate. Um, uh, yeah. So, I, I mean, in that sense, I would say absolutely it's both and. Okay. So here's, so here's the crux of the matter as far as what we're dealing with today. And I would love to hear your thoughts on it. So I think that unfortunately a lot of people would look, especially at, at different races or different genders or any of the external ways that we identify ourselves and they would say does does this race or this gender or this person do they have more attributes of the image of god than this other person 
that's kind of the first way of looking at it. Like what attributes do we have that get us the closest to the image of God? I think that's a really dangerous way to look at it. One of the reasons where I, I like that second way of looking at it is God didn't care how many or how good you do at imaging him. He chose you as a human to be his image on this earth. Therefore, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter how smart you are or how qualified you are. Because of the fact that you are a human and God chose humans to be his image, um, that absolutely negates any other external qualification we would have to be an image bearer. And to me, that gets around a lot of the fighting and the hassling that we have right now with each other of saying, um, what extent am I an image bearer of God? Or like, you're, you're looking over my image and you're, you're making yourself more of an image bearer of God, or I'm not being appreciated as an image bearer of God. All these different arguments that we're having, all these internecine conflicts that we're having, I think a lot of that goes away if we all recognize that God has chosen all of humanity to be his image bearers and that you're either a human or you're not a human. Absolutely nobody is saying that humans aren't humans. And I think that's a much more clarifying way to look at it. And if if we could get our eyes off fighting with each other about image bearers and get our eyes back on God and realize that we are all trying to bear his image together, that I think that would be really helpful. Now, I, th- I think that's a really easy gloss for me to make, and there's a lot more <laughs> there's a lot more uh, intricacies of working that out. But I would I would be interested to hear your response to that. Like, am I making that too easy, or uh, what do you? Well, think? I mean, I, I would say that's probably easy for you to say as like a white male. Um, I mean, I, not to put too fine a point on it, but um, yeah, I I think the the problem that you run into with that is it it keeps you from empathizing with the way that um, another person is feeling regardless of whether or not what you're saying is true. And by not not empathizing, um, what you end up communicating is that you don't value. And so I think it ends up undercutting the, what you're trying to achieve by by failing to approach it in a way that explicitly empathizes with the hurt of another person who you value. And I'm not saying that you've not done that. I'm just saying if I was just to take your, your words by themselves separated from everything else we've talked about. You know, I would, I would actually disagree with that in that if, if someone is, if someone is saying that someone else didn't recognize the image of God within them, I would say that that person that didn't recognize the image of God is not only a horrible person, but they're a horrible understander of the Bible. Like they, they have <laughs> yeah. both of those strikes against them. So I, I think that the way I'm describing it actually strengthens that argument of sympathy and empathy and says that if, if someone has mistreated you and overlooked the image of God in you, then they are not only a absolutely horrendous person, but they do not understand what it means for God to have made you in his image and you as an image bearer of himself in this world. Um, Show me the person that has questioned your humanity by saying that, and we will talk to them together and we will oppose them together. 
And I, so I, I think that it only strengthens the zeal that I would have to combat the words of anyone who would so blatantly question someone's fullness of humanity by calling that into question. And I think that it's just, to some extent, sloppy terminology that's, that's led us into this place of contradicting each other and not being able to work out what we mean by what I see as a, a failure to define our terms that has led to even more hurt than there already was. Um, I, I totally understand what you're saying. I, the only pushback I would have um, is that if I understand the, the motivation um, behind Jamar Tisby and some of the others that have left the SBC uh, for some of these reasons, uh, my, my pushback would be that their problem is not with our words. Their problem is not with our definition. Um, their problem is not with our, um, with our terminology or, I mean, we, I, I don't think that anybody, um, or at least relatively few, very few have probably, uh, directly verbally challenged their being an image bearer. I think the, the point that they're making is, um, whether, whether it is meant or not, whether it is said or not, um, it's being communicated that through action and through, um, you know, continued disagreement and, um, and, you know, just decisions that are made and, and that sort of thing, things that are said, um, that some of these people are not valued to the same degree as others. And nobody would come out and explicitly say that. Mm hmm. And, and I think that's where you, you run into the issue of empathy isn't so much that, um, that it's something that you need to challenge a person's words. I think most of these individuals would say that like on the whole, uh, Southern Baptists get our words right regarding, um, regarding the image of God, regarding the, the dignity of all humanity, um, and all that. I think there's just, I think the 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 hurt comes from maybe our our actions and our words and our ability to listen and empathize um, and then take the appropriate corrective action maybe hasn't caught up with the implications of what our words are demanding, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, I think there's no lack of people, even within the SBC, treating each other in a a way that is less than the way that Christ demands that we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, to say nothing of how we would treat people who are, who are not Christians. And so anytime we identify that people are being treated as less than or other than, or in any way other than the fullness of Christian love or charity, I think that's something we can all agree on, that we identify those actions. We all stand up together and denounce in the strongest possible language um, that these actions and attitudes are not okay, uh, while at the same time retaining language that allows us to clarify fully what we mean by the image of God so that people don't have to wonder, um, apparently, if, if other people are not recognizing the fullness of their image of God. And the more clarity we can get, the more easy it is to call out when people are mistreating others even with the words they use. 
um, because the muddier your language is, the easier it is for people to hide behind abusing each other and then being able to uh, wriggle out of that with uh, mealy-mouthed words or a lack of clarity that allows them to say one thing and then claim they mean another or to get out of things that they said um, with just obfuscatory language. So, so, so your argument then would be that the clarity of speech is is what holds them accountable. It's a thing that can definitely hold them accountable. Or a thing that holds them accountable. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I think probably as as you were identifying the the main problem that we have is people mistreating each other with their actions and their attitudes. Um, also, sure. we have a situation in which uh, I think that a lack of clear definitions in this case, maybe around what it means to be an image bearer of God has led someone like Jamar Tisby to say that he feels terribly mistreated in that way. And so I would want to identify what it has led to him saying that, identify any lack of clarity that we have around the image of God, and then to address that at the same time we're addressing actions and attitudes, like you said, that have led people in the SBC to feel marginalized overlooked or made to feel like an other as opposed to someone who's fully included as an image bearer of God. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough, uh, tough situation. There's, there's no necessarily quick or easy answer for it. Um, but, uh, I think it definitely, uh, deserves prayer. Um, and it deserves some a certain level of introspection because you know to your point earlier from uh, from you know the whole Beth Moore discussion like it's it's way too easy um, for us to disregard others as um, like on on social media there's a certain level of anonymity. Um, so that when you interact with somebody, you, you would say things uh, a lot of the times to a stranger, uh, that you wouldn't dare say to your mother or your, your friend. Well, I know you would, um, (laughs) JK, but, but, you know, I think even that same type of, of, um, Try to think what I'm trying to say. That that same type of anonymity um, and the same kind of um, divisiveness that can arise because of it, um, I think can maybe not to the same degree, but also uh, arise out of people who have a certain level of anonymity to us because of our lack of relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it may genuinely be that while I say the right things about what I value my in, in actual practice, I may not value them to the extent that I should, uh, because I don't have, you know, some of these relationships in place. It's not real to me. Um, and I think that is just a, um, a cultural and spiritual challenge that we're going to have to navigate over the coming years. And I think, you know, if that's what Jamar Tisby means by, um, by, you know, correcting, uh, and, and discussing and defining like this whole idea of the, of the image of God, then, um, you know, uh, that's, that's super important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 
Um, it's, it's hard when there's division in any sense, whether that's Beth Moore or, you know, Jamar Tisby or, uh, you know, any of our black or brown brothers and sisters that have said, I just can't do this anymore. Um, that's tragic. And that's certainly not up to the standard of gospel unity, um, that we, um, that we want to embody, that we're commanded to embody. Um, and so, uh, important conversations. And I think we would, we would really do well, um, particularly those of us in the majority. Um, I think we would really do well, uh, to listen and to try to understand as much as we can. Um, and, uh, and yeah, hopefully with that, with God's grace, uh, we'll, we'll make some progress and, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you thinking through that with me. Yeah, with with both what I heard from Beth Moore and and Jamar Tisby over this last week, I was um I was I was really sad for our denomination and 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 yeah. kind of mourning the fact privately that it seems to be people are being pulled apart rather than put back together. And yeah. um yeah, so just just the fact that unity doesn't seem to be the the word of the day is a tragic thing. Sometimes there are reasons to divide. And I think that it makes sense for all of us to look in our hearts, starting with me and making sure that I'm not a reason to divide and that I'm not pushing people away and that I'm not loving or idolizing my own preconceptions, whether they be political or sociological or religious or conventionally, whatever that might be to to look inside myself and make sure that I'm not acting in such a way that I've pushed someone out who hasn't in any other way disqualified themselves from fellowship. And I don't know that that's an, an answerable question always, unless we really get down to honest conversations between each other, where we all have a really clear understanding. I think sometimes it comes down to the sin in my heart. Sometimes it comes down to simple misunderstanding and sometimes it comes down to genuine reasons to divide. Uh, but it seems to me that, divisiveness is is winning the day in many many aspects right now where i i think otherwise it shouldn't be which is a uh, a troubling thing to me yep um like i said um not surprising but very very saddening and um you know i i just think of the fact that that god does not uh divide from us over the many countless times we've been divisive in our relationship toward him. And it makes me super, super thankful. And it's gives us a, a target to shoot for in terms of our relationships with one another. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as always, I am thankful beyond words for my relationship with you and I uh, appreciate your, your friendship and thank you for your time today. It's been a, it's been fun doing this on a Saturday, which I, I don't think we've ever done this on a Saturday afternoon before. So it's been fun doing it in the daylight. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll talk to you soon, buddy. All right, buddy. Have a great rest of your day.